0: I'm not an audio engineer, or I would know how to clean that up.
1: Uh, It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm probably gonna be peeing a lot because I've been sick, so I've been uh, just drinking like three gallons of water a day. Yeah. And just been like flushing the entire flushing my system.
0: Dude, I'm down for bricks because I feel like fucking crazy town over here.
1: Because it's been crazy for weeks. Yeah.
0: Because of color, because of packing,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, because of job.
1: Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, it actually feels good to be podcasting again, dude. Back to the show.
0: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: Um. podcasting is my whole <clears throat> livelihood now, so. Yeah. Can't. Can't say I have the same feelings, but it feels good to, you know talking about something that I don't know a lot about, but don't have to pretend to. But at least something I'm vaguely interested in.
1: Yeah, this is gonna be fun, I think. As fun as it can be for that. When you're talking about Theory of the Lyric.
0: Goodbye, Mormon vampires. Never missed them so much.
1: Yeah, and after this, since we took that out, I didn't even prepare an intro for color, which I was thinking I should, because... I mean, nobody knows who this guy is. <laughs> heavy. Bored. Heavy.
0: I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. get you know one of his uh uh, he does that little theory book that a lot of like intro uh, uh english classes will teach literary theory it's like you know one of those tiny books they have one that's also like critical theory that i think is a big one
1: it's a it's the very short introduction uh series of books you're talking about yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah, I would go get it, but I'd have to get up, and it just doesn't feel worth it.
1: Yeah, but those that don't know, I mean, he's basically just like, you know, a hotshot professor. He's at Cornell, I guess. Or was he at Chicago? The book says he's at Cornell, but I don't know. I guess that's where he is.
0: Damn, we don't get a... I'm surprised it doesn't say.
1: The book just says that, yeah, he's like a professor of English and comparative literature at Cornell.
0: Oh, yeah. There you go.
1: That's what they say. But I think he mentioned that like I think at one point in his career he did work at like U of Chicago or uh some other, maybe Syracuse or like one of the other kind of big, big schools. Yeah. Where they can afford to have people with uh professors in English and comparative literature on staff and tenured, I guess. Which is very few colleges now, but yeah. Alright, but another episode of Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Witstat.
0: I'm Sophie Weiner.
1: And today we're doing Jonathan Culler's Theory of the Lyrics. So this, and and we have the same version of this, Harvard University Press. Little it's the only pro- one you can get. Yeah. <laughs> little pricey, is. but uh, for a paperback. But if you're into poetry, it's something worth buying. We're, as always, we're going to link it in the description as we go into this. Uh...
0: Yeah, it is, like, an academic text, so those are always a little bit pricier, especially if, like, you know, they're new and not considered, like, a staple.
1: Yeah, and people are going to buy them, like, so you got to make your money back if you're printing that, at least to break even if they're doing that even with, like, books like this for publishing. I guess Harvard has enough money that they can just support a press, like, the endowment can just support a press for Infinity, as long as civilization exists. Uh, but first things first, housekeeping. We've been forgetting to do this the last couple uh, episodes here. We've been having too much fun talking about vampires fucking each other.
0: Waiting to fuck each other. Waiting
1: to fuck each other. Uh, so, for listeners listening, we've uh, we're we're looking for workshop horror stories. Uh, if you have a workshop horror story you want to share with us. Uh, send that to heavyboardpodcast at com. We'd like to get that started and uh, commiserate with you. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, subscribe to support us if you don't want to join Patreon, can't afford it. Uh, subscribe to this pod on any of your platform that you choose. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us that way. Or, uh, and, and or, leave a five-star review. We could appreciate it. It'll help us out. doesn't cost you anything. Well, maybe it does. That's it. Send us your workshop horror stories again at heavyboardpodcast at com, and we'll get that started. But well, That was pretty much it. I've been waiting for people to send us those, but I guess we just don't have any listeners so nobody sends, yeah. sends those in. They're too embarrassed. Yeah.
0: Well, what if it's like really awful and someone like called you a bigot and like you are one. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the worst case scenario.
1: Yeah. I guess I was going to say that's, 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 I mean, that's most, well, I've
0: never personally seen it happen in a workshop.
1: I mean, I've seen people that weren't be accused of it just because. Yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. It's it's that the hasn't, to do, but... I've
0: heard of, that happening i haven't witnessed it myself
1: yeah i mean i've throughout my workshops there's been there's been a at least a blow up every fucking time that there's
0: well that's fun
1: yeah so i assume i'm not alone in that like everybody has these blow ups but
0: i have plenty of horror stories but not that particular example
1: oh fucking color, dude. How do do you want to... I guess let's just do thoughts, and then we'll start breaking it. Initial thoughts, reactions.
0: In really small bites, I can take this book. In really small bites. This was hard for me to stay awake reading. (laughs) It really was. It was a challenge. I also am... I did not help that at all because half the time I was like trying to read at night. So I'd fall asleep, but You know, also a couple times during the day. It's just, it's really academic. I like it in pieces. There are moments that I find myself getting into it. um, But I can't, like, sit down. I mean, even one chapter of reading, I had to break up into days.
1: Yeah. Um, Like Sophie said, it's an academic text. So this is not an easy read. And those that read these types of things often, you kind of get the academic kind of jargon, kind of, you know, uh, not like, I didn't want to, I don't want to say like head up your own, uh, head up their own ass or anything, but just like these words that like you don't understand unless you have a master's degree in the subject kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, the academic trick where they like to redefine commonly used terms to fit their arguments. So they'll be using a word uh, that you could, I don't know, use at any given time. And you, everybody knows what it means, but then they're using it a very particular way, like giving it a name. <clears throat> so that's annoying when you're reading through these books. But
0: Well, I think that happens a lot with, discussions of poetry in particular which i tend to be kind of forgiving of just because that tends to be the nature of poetry anyway
1: well i just mean so like that makes it so that it's not like a general audience appeal yeah
0: it's really not this is yeah i mean i am a pretty regular reader of poetry and i this is like this is a, a text for an academic audience it's it's like the kind of book that you pull off a library shelf if you are writing a paper.
1: Yeah, or a thesis with this, uh, <clears throat> using this long, long, dense text. And Color says in this, too, I guess in the introduction, where he says that this is basically his life's work. Although we'll get to the end of this, so we're kind of like, oh, all right. Uh, but yeah, for me, this was a hard read. This was hard to get through. It took a lot of reading and rereading, like, <clears throat> and a lot of the structure is like super, <clears throat> it's it's so dense to the point where well, you...
0: Well, yeah, it's what, 360 pages or something? Yeah. About.
1: Yeah, with like another 100 pages of citation, because you have to have all those citations at the end of a book like this in the notes section about 40 pages for like, a work cited, essentially. It is organized nicely. So, again, it's, like, organized and set up to be an academic text. So this might be the most academic book we've done so far, I think. Right.
0: I mean, would you say that Harold Bloom's essay wasn't academic? This is maybe a more complete academic text.
1: Harold Bloom's stuff, it was academic, but, but he has a way of writing, and this is why he's more popular than somebody like Color. Because he can write to a general audience where it's clear that color yeah. is kind of incapable of writing towards non-graduate students. Yeah. Uh, whereas Bloom could make everybody kind of understand what he's saying, and Bloom was incredibly charming. Well, and, and
0: he was also, I mean, to be fair, we were looking at uh, an essay that was about how to read poetry and was directed at, you know, younger or newer readers Right. This is clearly
1: like, not. And it was an introductory essay with an anthology, yeah. not uh, this. But, yeah, this is definitely the most academic thing we've talked about so far. And uh, my overall thing, I was intrigued at parts of this. I talked to Sophie about this. I was intrigued because I think color raises a lot of important ideas in this. But at the same time, I was disappointed because I don't think he actually goes into like an answer for all this
0: yeah and i don't think that he actually by the end of it you know he's like i'm not pretending to and i think he says this at the beginning too like i'm not pretending to you know give you some comprehensive guide to reading the lyric or an answer to what precisely the lyric is but more of uh An exploration of all of the possibilities and maybe offering some critique of some of them and pulling out what is useful from others, but I don't think he intends to provide some comprehensive, like, this is what the lyric is and this is how it should be read.
1: Yeah, which is what I was expecting from this book and it didn't happen.
0: Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't think this is giving anything away in our conversation, but what can one say in conclusion? I have not attempted to determine what is or is not a lyric, but have been asking what is the best model of the lyric for encouraging a capacious appreciation of these poems. <sighs> which we hear about a lot. Yeah. A capacious appreciation.
1: And he really doesn't give us a model for that either. I guess he does, but he doesn't state. He it does, explicitly. but the thing
0: is, yeah. Well, we'll get to this. Mm-hmm. I think he does a good job of, you know, offering up the points where, like, you know, he's trying to offer us a, a way of maybe understanding how to appreciate these poems more. But I don't think. With the exception of getting into, like, the nitty-gritty, like, details. And maybe that's, you know, all you can really do with something as sort of uh, potentially dense a subject as poetry. Yeah. I I just don't... I guess it feels like a lot of these points as he was making, I was like, yeah, okay, and? Yeah. And what? Like... As a person who like learned to read poetry already, reads poetry, has studied it to some degree, though certainly not to the degree that he has. A lot of the ways that he suggests to appreciate poems don't feel, and I don't think he's pretending that they're new, but they don't feel new to me. And I think I was hoping that I would find something that was new to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was just hoping for like, like, cause he does raise points that I think are more interesting than what he actually does in the book, but he doesn't yeah. go into them enough. Cause he's, he's kind of very much focused on this overall summary to make this like, I guess he feels, and this is kind of how you're trained in academics too, is like to make a claim, you have to address the entire history and i'd say that's probably what the first 200 pages of this book are is 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 what this book is it's just a summary of all the form like all the frameworks for interpreting or reading lyric poetry throughout history and mostly i guess what is it like 19th century french is when it really this start is what he seems to focus on the most because that's when this really started to, uh, I guess be this theory um, of the lyrics started being present. I mean, there were always stuff cause he goes back to Aristotle. He goes back to this stuff, but I would say the bulk of it is he's referring to kind of the, you know, 19th century French, uh, scholars and writers.
0: There's a lot of that, but I would say we get, I mean, we get into contemporary too.
1: Yeah, of course, you have to.
0: But yeah, it is clear very quickly that he's very well studied in, you know, theory and criticism.
1: (sighs) All right, so he lays this down in the preface here. Uh, This is page eight of the preface, first full paragraph. Uh skipping ahead it says literary studies should be devoted not to developing new and more intricate interpretations of literary works but to exploring the underlying structures and conventions that enable literary works to have the meanings and effects they do for readers in short that poetics should take precedence over uh how the fuck do you say that hermeneutics, hermeneutics. yeah in short, that poetic should take precedence over hermeneutics. So I think that's basically like what he's, he's trying to get at. And again, going back to like the recent French theory, as he talks about, literary studies should be devoted not to developing new and more intricate interpretations of literary works, but to exploring the underlying structures and conventions that enable literary works to have the meanings and effects they do for readers. So, I think that's interesting stuff, right? What do we think of this? How do we make this? Do we think that this is accurate, good, missing something?
0: Well, I think it makes sense. I think, you know, if one of the things that he is sort of starting off saying that he doesn't like about the current, maybe, approach to studying poetry and specifically lyric poetry is that were hung up on focusing solely on meaning. And I guess specifically this idea that I like, I don't I guess I am I'm wondering, is that the goal? I mean, I assume he knows better than I do, but I am not reading all of these books that must be coming out then about different ways of understanding and interpreting the same poems over and over again
1: well he does get into this a little bit further on this is just the preface where he's kind of laying down an overview to, so i mean one of the telltale signs that this is like an academic book is that there's a preface and an introduction <laughs> both written by him uh and they basically say the same things but they go and like he you know it's the same type of thing we did with bloom here where it kind of builds on each thing Like each chapter tries to build onto the idea, the theory that he's presenting. But structures and conventions, so more of like exploring the underlying structures and conventions that enable literary works to have the meanings and effects they do for readers. So that seems to be the focus of this book, I would say, which is why I highlighted it at least. And I think that's interesting. I mean, uh, i was talking to Sophie about this I think a lot of this book is much ado about nothing but um, you know that's what academics like to do they like to kind of create um, ways that make it harder for people to think about things <laughs> like, uh, but yeah so it's just like overview of what I would say
0: yeah well how does he define hermeneutics hang on i my notes
1: Ooh, good luck dude
0: um, hermeneutics is about discovering meaning and poetics is about discovering the conventions that allow for the experience of meaning or meaning for the reader.
1: Right. So
0: yeah, that gets pretty hairy. Right. Yeah. I don't want to get, I don't feel like getting overly hung up on the terminology is necessarily useful in this instance for our purpose.
1: Right. These minor distinctions that are, are tedious uh, I was just going to move to the introduction here, uh, where he starts talking about lyric and genre. What do you think? I mean, the quote I highlighted on Oh, the...
0: you mean moving past... Wait, are we doing the first chapter, or are we skipping to two?
1: I just did introduction. Oh, okay. Not the first chapter, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing... <coughs> that... I got from the intro. Okay, so there, like, I mean, there's a lot that he lays out in the introduction that gets repeated throughout the book. There is a lot of discussion of Aristotle, right? So there's a lot of discussion about the idea that poetry is mimesis, right? Uh, Is um, an imitation of an action. Right. And essentially, he's sort of siding against that and saying, no, this is not mimesis. We aren't just, it, poems aren't an imitation of something. They are themselves something that you experience. Yeah. He also suggests that uh, a number of things are neglected to in discussions of lyric poetry because of our focus on interpretation and trying to discover new interpretations.
1: Yeah. Um, Really, just in terms of this genre, where he talks about lyric genre, uh, he kind of uses the romantic... conception of it page one lyric is finally lyric was finally made one of the three fundamental genres during the romantic period when a more vigorous and highly developed conception of the individual subject made it possible to conceive of lyric as mimetic an imitation of the experience of the subject so like sophie was just saying uh you know lyric as opposed to what they would call drama and then epic like these three different genres and this is kind of established, it's not like color saying anything new, right? Like you said, this has kind of been established since the Romantic era. Again, going back to that, like, 19th century French and, like, English era, right? Like, he's that's where a lot of this, like, <clears throat> study of literature really blossomed in the academy, I guess. <clears throat> but he does try to give us, um, he uses Hegel. Oh my god, dude, all these different people that he uses to, like, try to explain this to us, like... There are points in this book where my eyes were just glazing over from this, this bullshit. I know. But...
0: It, don't you wish that there was just. I mean, like, this is so bitchy and so, like, oh, I don't want to read it. But, like, don't you kind of wish that there was just, like, a super condensed version where, like, most of uh, the references are taken out and he just presents to you what he actually thinks?
1: Yeah, I think he could do that. But this... I don't think
0: he can. Uh, Well, I do think he can. I just, I don't think that would be the same thing. I think it would be, like, a really different kind of essay.
1: Yeah, and to give you an idea of how much nonsense or what I would say, I mean, when he gives the Hegel on page two, top of page two, uh, Hegel gives the fullest expression to the romantic theory of the lyric, whose distinguishing feature is the centrality of subjectivity coming to consciousness of itself through experience and reflection. The lyric poet absorbs into himself the external world and stamps it with inner consciousness, and the unity of the poem is provided by this subjectivity.
0: Right, well, that makes total sense to me. particular it's So it's the kind of thing that's really weird to read outside of the context of reading a particular poem. Right? It sounds really weighted down with all of this, you know, maybe over what feels like maybe slightly overwrought language.
1: Yeah. Well, and... listeners to this will know about my feeling of consciousness in this. <clears throat> Distinguishing feature is the centrality of subjectivity coming to consciousness of itself.
0: So I can see this pretty easily in the context of like a a poem from like the high romantic period of like engaging with the outer world where sometime during that it turns really inward and subjective and maybe the internal landscape is sort of marked as the external landscape.
1: My thing is the consciousness of itself and I was like so the poem is conscious the reader or it creates this thing that we're calling consciousness. I think it's just
0: a sort of academic, maybe slightly obnoxious way of saying, of referring to the uh, speaker, right? Or whatever is speaking.
1: The enunciative apparatus. The enunciative apparatus. scholar calls it. The enunciative apparatus. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean,
0: that's just when you're like, you're splitting hairs so much that. You know, when you're in a room with a bunch of academics that all have their own definitions of what a speaker is or what voice is, that you just have to create some other category to call what you want to define.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: So that a bunch of people won't jump on you and say, well, no, this is what a speaker is.
1: Well, I like <clears throat> that you said that. You pointed that out too, with like people jumping on you, because I, I can feel the hedging in this book. It feels like color is making good points, but he's afraid to make the actual statement because people will jump down his throat if he makes it, well, this is what lyric poetry is, right? Of course they will because people get upset about things like that, but it really hurts this overall book, I would say, because he's not making that declarative statement of this is what it is. And maybe people would argue, oh, you can't do that. Because poetry, again, is this romanticized thing that we have to treat as sacred. But, like, come on, dude, you're writing a theory, like, here. This is just a theory. This is your theory. Give us the theory, right? Like, you know, you go through all these other theories throughout history. Give us the theory. And I just, we don't get it. And I think that's because, like, you just said, that this idea that if you were to make a bold statement like that, like, present a new theory, a new way of thinking about lyric, that, like, Yeah, I mean, you would have to face a lot of criticism that he probably doesn't want to do. Well, you
0: would just have to have like, you know, 20 separate responses to 20 different academics who are giving you their, you know, definitions of voice and what that actually means. And here's my long history and here's all my documentation and provide all of these explanations as to why the thing I'm talking about isn't precisely the same as the thing that you're talking about or why you know, I mean, you're basically starting an argument with a bunch of your peers, which is.
1: Which is the field. Okay. Which is (laughs) is scholarship. I mean, you read what other people wrote and then you write analysis or you write your own kind of thing and like how it compares. And he does that here. Like he's doing that part of it, you know, like he takes a long time to do that. But I just, like I said, by the time I got to the conclusion, he's like, well, I'm not saying I have an answer. I'm like, then what are you? Why did you write this 360 page fucking book?
0: I want to know Uh, what prompts him to be so invested in the inadequacies of current models. And it struck me that he said current models falsify the long tradition of lyric and encourage students to think about lyrics in ways that neglect some of the central features of lyric poetry both present and past.
1: What page is that?
0: That's on page three, the middle paragraph.
1: Yeah. And this is where I think he makes a good point too. Uh, Right before that, where he says one result of the centrality of the novel to theoretical discourse, as well as to literary experience and literary education has been the development of a novelizing account of the lyric that fails to respond to what is most extravagant and most distinctive about it. So he's basically arguing, like Sophie said in that other passage, that...
0: Um, we're bad at teaching it. Not
1: <laughs> we're not that we or that the uh... novel has taken over uh, poetry, which I guess well, is true.
0: And that... The thing is, he says, current models falsify the long tradition of lyric and encourage students to think about lyrics in ways that neglect some of the central features of lyric poetry. So I assume that we're just talking about these specific models that um, he goes on to summarize throughout the entire rest of this book.
1: Well the first two chapters are basically yeah him just summarizing that like But these himself.
0: aren't models from which I feel like we actively most for the most part are teaching. I mean some of them yeah, pieces of them yeah. But he talks about and this is also a lot of what I think he talks about in the first chapter which is you know the way that we ask students who are learning to read poetry to engage with it and i don't know it feels like he's addressing something without saying it directly
1: yeah because you know again like you calling
0: us dumb bro
1: well he has to hedge because if you say that this is wrong well then he's gonna be attacked by all these things blah blah people are gonna be pissed but whatever man i mean everybody's a pussy like, Everybody's who is teaching
0: terrified. the models of the lyric that you find inadequate?
1: Uh, but my question here was just like, uh, well, he does go over, like, the models yeah. here. But my question is, is he correct about the novel taking over, like, kind of literature education? What do we think?
0: Uh, I would say yes. I would say also more recently, maybe nonfiction.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting. I didn't think about that, but bringing it up now, he says it's kind of around the turn of the century in the twentieth century where the novel really kind of took over, uh, uh, <clears throat> like the education model, how we learn about literature and texts and how to read them. But now, like Sophie just said, I think yeah, nonfiction is becoming the new way more prominent. I mean, yeah, like uh,
0: I'm not saying that it's more than the novel i can't i don't think i could make that claim or that it's I don't even know.
1: that different than you know novel. but i
0: do see i in my time that i have you know that was in grad school or teaching after grad school um i saw a lot of nonfiction. in english classes and i this is all like A lot of it, I think, is like intro classes and then a lot of it. I think there is also like the highly specialized classes. So if you're like, I don't know, taking. uh, My program happened to have a lot of um, like African-American lit classes or like slave literature classes. And there was a lot of nonfiction built into those as well, which makes sense.
1: Right. Um, well, even I was going to go even more obvious example, like less academic was just, yeah, I mean, advertising and things like that. Like there's more of this kind of non fiction aspect to even advertising campaigns, <clears throat> like using, um. you know, a real story or a personal story or personal truth or something like that to, uh But if we're talking about color's idea you know in the way that color's talking about it i'm not sure that it's that different than like the novelizing of how we read and interpret things so like it kind of follows the same trajectory as like a novel if but it is interesting that that's changing again now that we're at a turn of a new century and it's kind of changing again to a different kind of form but then again you could argue you know right the more things change the more things stay the same type thing
0: yeah, and nonfiction has also exploded in the oh. la- like creative nonfiction as right. a genre has just exploded. And you That's know,
1: just trend right now, but yeah, the
0: last however long, I wanted to say like the last decade, but I again, I, it's probably longer than that that it's been
1: yeah. growing. All right, so this is a long quote on page five, basically the the full paragraph in the middle there. Uh, we, don't, we might not have to read all of this, but I'm just going to read it to set this stuff in terms of what we're... I think he really lays down his what he's arguing against, if he's arguing against this. So, a further goal here is to combat what I take to be an unnecessary presumption of much lyric theory and pedagogy. That the goal of reading a lyric is to produce a new interpretation. This is a recent development in the history of poetry. In prior centuries, readers expected poems to teach and delight. Students were not asked to work out the sort of interpretations now deemed proof of serious study. They might parse, imitate, translate, memorize, evaluate, or identify allusions and rhetorical or prosodic strategies, but interpretation in the modern sense was not part of literary engagement until the 20th century, and writers and readers may not have been greatly the worse for it. They could acquire knowledge of the tradition and develop considerable expertise and power of discrimination without assuming that the goal of engagement with poetry was producing interpretations. In sum, readers appreciated poems much as we do songs. We listen to songs without assuming that we should develop interpretations. We take them to illuminate the world, and we sing them to others or to ourselves, point out what we like about them compare them to other songs by the same and different artists, and generally develop considerable connoisseurship about songs without engaging in interpretation. We might do well to ponder the fact that time has brought no falling off in love song in, in love of song, while the presumption that poems exist to be interpreted has accompanied a diminution of interest in the lyric. So that's a long quote, but I think he's essentially making that argument that... <clears throat> because we emphasize interpretation and specifically novel, like interpretation, narrative, like interpretation, we emphasize that he's arguing, uh, that we lose what the lyric is actually trying to do.
0: So the thing I struggled with here is what is the distinction between, I guess, does he mean producing new interpretations or does he uh, just any interpretation?
1: Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think, I mean, means... I think
0: he means new just because that's how he starts this paragraph. Uh, there's this goal of reading to produce new interpretation, but then he presents this, you know, uh, students were not asked to, work out the sort of interpretations now deemed proof of serious study they might parse imitate translate memorize evaluate or identify illusions and rhetorical or prosodic strategies but interpretation here is something else like all of those things to me are aspects of i guess w- maybe we should distinguish here interpretation from fostering understanding
1: Yeah, it's, it gets confusing here, and I kept, I was texting Sophie about this, a lot of what he's saying struck me as a distinction without a difference a lot of these times, uh, because it is like splitting hairs over this, so for when I was first reading this, and I had to reread a bunch of this stuff, Well, he said, you know, the presumption that poems exist to be interpreted has accompanied a diminution of interest in the lyrics. So he's saying the fact that we're putting this novel-like, um, purpose onto lyric poems, i.e. to instruct and delight or something, right? Uh, or just to give us a narrative. That's Sir Philip Sidney. Yeah, or just to give us a narrative or some type of, uh, character arc, like in an epic or something. Uh... He's claiming that that has led to the lack of interest in lyric poetry. So he's it's quite a mouthful. Like, this is a long paragraph. You guys heard me read this out. It's long. It's convoluted. Again, he's using words that, you know, take some thinking about when you, when you have to read it like this. Uh, but then at the end of it, we're kind of like, oh, he's making quite a, a large claim here. And he does grant that even that, like it's still a form of interpretation. So he goes on to kind of keep explaining this song thing, which is what I think is one of his strongest points. But uh, still, it just kind of falls short for me. Like just not enough in there.
0: Well, it also makes me wonder if this is a response to something happening in like a new wave of the academic community. I mean,
1: it Uh, is. More
0: than, well, yeah, but more (laughs) than he's just talking about you know the average teacher of literature yeah or the average student of literature i think maybe that he's identifying this as a trend in academia like among um you know other people who write texts like this
1: yeah I think it's definitely, I mean, it's not like naming anything in particular, although he does go into different forms here in the later chapters. Why you
0: have to wonder.
1: I mean, I think he's pretty clearly like trying to take a stand, and I I think that's why he hedges so much, is because to take a stand like this against the current pedagogy and teaching poems... yeah, of course he's gonna get a lot of shit. Although, I mean, what he's tenured, he's protected. I don't know why he's. Well, and about I think it, there but... is
0: very much right now an emphasis on like the situation of the speaker, which I'm sure we will get to. Right, but, that, uh... and he
1: does make like the kind of, you know, the biography, which we've already said I've said on this podcast. We both said it. Like, you know, when you're relying on biography of the writer to give a poem some type of meaning or you think you're discovering something like you're going about it the wrong way, this kind of obsession well, and with biographical I mean, analysis.
0: There are times when that's really helpful and it can be, uh, illuminating.
1: And this is, this is one of my questions. But if,
0: if the poem on its own doesn't produce something beyond that, beyond like where you don't need mm-hmm. to have their full biography in front of you. I mean, this is the issue. Like, I think Sylvia Plath is the obvious example oh, God, where yeah. people love to read into her biography and her death and use that as a way of interpreting her poems to mean things that I don't... Some of which you could probably... You, I mean, some of those interpretations you could get on your own without knowing her biography, too.
1: Yeah, and that's one like thing the I...
0: phrase. Daddy, daddy, bastard! I'm through. You don't need to know that she died not long after writing that poem to come up with the interpretation of "through" as dead.
1: Yeah. He I
0: don't knows. think it's the right. I don't think it's the right interpretation, but I think it's not that far of a reach.
1: Yeah, and one thing he doesn't mention at all, in this, which I was kind of surprised with, because he he doesn't mention the confessional poets um Plath being you know probably the most famous for even people not in into poetry or literature I can
0: see why he wouldn't though because I think it's so talked about and I think he wanted to sort of broaden the way that maybe we were thinking about lyric poetry I mean we're also all obsessed with the confessional,
1: right well that's what I, we have been for a long time. The reason I say I was surprised he didn't mention it is because he's talking about this narrativizing these poems or a speaker in a poem, and how that's not necessarily the way to interpret a lyric, but then <clears throat> you have to kind of grapple with the fact that there was this movement in the twentieth century mid twentieth century that uh used that as a form of of poetry so i mean that clouded things i think almost more than the novel dominating this is the only reason i would think that he would bring it up because he's been so thorough about these kind of interpretations and he just kind of says well it's the novel's popularity and the novel did get very popular in the 20th century but yeah, I mean, these this confessional movement, I think, has a huge part to do with why we're obsessed with biographical analysis, why we're obsessed with, you know, this kind of putting um, a speaker onto a lyric poem, as he kind of argues against here.
0: Or not so much that it's like putting a speaker onto a lyric poem, so much as it's trying to imagine the specific speaker Right. So there's this idea that often in a lyric poem, there's a sort of loose persona that speaks and it may or may not be in some regard the poet. I don't think it matters, really. But that when we ask students, you know, who is the speaker of this poem? Who do we think it is? Uh, what do we think is their situation? What is happening in this poem? I think what he's actually saying is, in many cases, it's not necessarily useful to imagine a specific speaker and their circumstances as some kind of fictional character
1: right Putting or like real a character
0: or yeah. like a real person it, i mean you just get the sense that there is someone speaking
1: well that's what i mean that's why i think like it's it was i was kind of shocked that he didn't include confessional because like that's a huge part of confessional where it is considered to be the poet speaking right although it, you know we can argue whatever it's not yeah but that was a huge part of it because it is confessional literally in that sense so And I mean, whatever, he was doing a very large historical kind of summary here. So, you know, you can't hit everything, but I was like, "Eh, whatever. But I wanted to ask before we move on from this into like the first couple chapters uh, about this idea of the presumption that poems exist to be interpreted has accompanied a diminution of interest in the lyric. Like, what do we think of that? Do we think that's why people are less interested in lyric poetry? Because they're like... Uh, we presume to interpret the poem.
0: Well, I think <laughs> I think that's kind of loaded. It's like asking why don't people like to read?
1: Well, my answer to that, I think my answer to that would be the same as the answer to this, which is like, is it because we interpret poetry, or is it because? TV and film were invented. Like, yeah. <laughs> like uh,
0: I do think there's something here. Or is uh, it because lyric poems
1: that... started getting very bad post-romantic period, right? Like postmodern. Well, I think there's period. more than
0: that too. I think people are, you know, they look at poetry. At least students, I've often had students who look at poetry in the past and said, "Like, mm, I don't understand."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's this fear of not understanding, or like that it's hard that you're going to get the wrong answer. And then I am someone who does believe there are wrong answers. But, uh, yeah, I do think that there is an element of wariness to approaching poetry just because it's more difficult than something that isn't poetry or just a lack of familiarity with
1: it. Yeah, and I guess he is... And I don't
0: know if it's because of the hang-up on interpretation or just because of where we are in time.
1: Right, because I think this was published in 2015, I guess, if we didn't mention it before, listeners, Mm -hmm. and it's like... But he had parts of this, I think he had been publishing since the 70s. Like, he had been working on this theory for a long time. Again, a theory that isn't really a theory because he doesn't set it forth or just kind of critiques other ones. But it's still, like... I wonder, well, is... that's
0: why it's not called A Theory of the Lyric or The Theory of the Lyric. It's just Theory of the Lyric. Yeah.
1: Right?
0: <laughs> He's just presenting a lot of the theories and maybe nitpicking about parts of them that he deems inadequate or potentially more useful than others.
1: Yeah. And this is – parts of it, the reason I bring that up 2015 to now kind of thing is – it does feel like a lament at some parts of this, particularly towards the conclusion and things like that. Like, you know, the kind of, Oh, people aren't reading as much. It's like, yes, that's true. Right. Like people are not reading as much and that's a new thing that's been like happening in the last couple decades. Just couple, uh, in terms of just like sales and stuff, if you want to go off that like book sales have decreased even for the most popular writers, and that this has been it's it's kind of been a trend for a while, but the last decade at least, I would say you've seen yeah. I would assume that it's been a trend since TV. Yeah, but you've seen big accelerations in like the trend of like less people reading, less people buying books, etc. Like even somebody like Grisham or uh, you know Patterson King, like all these people, like they sell they admit like they sell about half as many books as they did you know well, ten think fifteen about... years ago.
0: Think about the popularity of audiobooks too.
1: yeah you know Little you're people... not
0: getting poetry audiobooks chances are.
1: Well that too, and I just yeah I just don't know so much of it. Well, and I get he's trying to talk about a theory, but that's just it intrigued me to be like, okay, is it because of the way we're taught to interpret these poems or is it because we have other forms of getting that thing that we get out of poetry now? you know, especially in the 20th century. Like, he's talking about that change in the timeline. But, yeah. Or is it just because, you know, poetry sucks right now? Like, <laughs> you know, and nobody wants yeah, to I read Yeah, I mean,
0: it. I think we don't read.
1: Yeah, well, that that's probably the bigger thing, right? And he's just saying that we don't because we don't get enjoyment out of it because of this interpretive method, but I would argue it's because, you know, we're fucking numb from all the we can have entertainment at our fingertips at any given time. The invention of TV, like Frank O'Hara always said, right? And he mentioned, we have social media.
0: You don't, who needs TV now?
1: Right. Well, he does mention Frank O'Hara at one point when he talks about his, I do, uh, I do this, I do that form. But more importantly, the thing I always talk about with Frank O'Hara is that he always said, look, if you want people to read your poems, well, they better be better than the movies. And, you know, Frank O'Hara at the time, the movies were a very big deal, right? At the start of New Hollywood and all that, like movies were becoming the cultural thing. So he understood that and he knew that like, yeah, if you want people to actually give a shit about this, like, well, it has to be better than all the other options on the table. And if you're not doing that, they're not even going to care kind of thing
0: well then think about how many poets there are now and how many
1: well that too and if the number of poets would be fine if they were good but like again if it, they're not good but it's not better than all the other well there's options, also that much
0: more competition right
1: which you would think would lead to better or a but,
0: small audience
1: yeah where you would think would lead to a bigger audience or better stuff because there's so much but it's not like you know the market rules don't apply for something like art or whatever like it just doesn't No. Work.
0: I imagine much of poetry is consumed either by people who are themselves poets or people who are reading poems on Instagram or Twitter.
1: Yeah. I because mean, their friends
0: write or because they know someone or whatever. You yeah. Know? Or because they follow Rupi Carr. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Should we uh, should we move on? I I just they're a yeah. part of it like
0: the answer to should we move on when it comes to this book is always yes.
1: Yeah, I just, there are so many parts where I'm just like, man, he just really seems like he's overcomplicating this. We
0: are going to provide a really probably inadequate overview. Actually, probably perfectly adequate. Yeah, I feel dude. like we'll hit all the. <laughs> we'll this is heavy board, bitch. You don't have to read the whole 350 pages.
1: Yeah, this is heavy board, bitch. This and boy, a, were yeah.
0: we bored. Yeah. <laughs> I was heavy too, I was feeling fat as shit.
1: Yeah. Uh what the hell was I talking about? All right, next thing. Did you have anything you wanted to hit and chat? I had something. Like Mark. Page 22. This is after. So good for it. Yeah.
0: Last thing I'll say is that I just want to make sure that we understand that one of the central things that I think he is pushing against throughout this book which isn't a new thing to be pushing against I think a lot of people have been saying this for some time there's this idea of the lyric poem as a fictional imitation of a what he calls a real world speech act yeah <laughs> uh, uh, you know in so many words, um, and instead is making the claim that the lyric should be experienced as an event of its own volition and not an imitation of something.
1: And he tries to define this down, but of course he defines it in this very kind of autistic way, like this kind of Yeah,
0: academic... well, he, he, he's going to yeah. But he's going to keep referring to Mimesis, and that's really what he's talking about, right? That when he's talking about poetry as mimetic, and he's pushing against the idea that lyric poetry is mimetic, he's saying it's not just an imitation of speech. It is something else. Right?
1: Uh, yeah, for okay. the most part. Uh, on page 22 after he's, he starts in the first chapter, he just starts giving us, you know, nine examples kind of thing. And he's he he said he deliberately uses these examples to kind of make, because they're difficult, they could argue that they're a lyric or you could argue that they're something else, right? So he purposely chose these to uh, be able to argue that they're lyric to, you know, try and make his argument stronger kind of thing. But on page 22 in the middle of that, paragraph uh, says when he's talking about sequences right so like he said this is a part of the lyric is that they follow these kind of sequences which he later goes on to call rituals ritualistic things Uh, you might even think of them as traditions to some extent I don't think it would be too far of a stretch or like be misinterpreting him to say that but he says, such sequences are more often read according to the implicit model that has succeeded it and now dominates lyric pedagogy. The lyric as a fictional representation of a speech act by a persona, not the poet. So, but despite the presumptions of lyric theory of the past two centuries, many lyrics do not project a speaker character. It is scarcely a requirement of the genre. So, like Sophie said, he's talking about <clears throat> this kind of speech act, a fictional speech act or whatever. He's kind of talking about the poet versus the speaker or speech act or what he calls the enunciative apparatus. My question was just, all right, what do, what do we, what does he mean by this or what do we mean by it?
0: Hang on. I want to make sure I understand sequences. Cause I can't remember. I feel like there was a piece where he goes on to talk about sequences in the way that poems might've been published so maybe it's like a series of poems that all fit together, but are not published in one book together, but, um, sequentially over time.
1: I think in here, when he's talking about the Petrarchan lyric, he just means sequence in terms of like pattern. That's why I said like tradition and or, because this is, and this is the thing listeners when you have these academic texts, Academics are trained to basically just confuse the shit out of you with, like, with jargon and just, like, redefine common phrases that, like, we would normally understand to, like, make them overly complicated.
0: Right, because, well, because their audience is their peers. Yeah. Not us.
1: Although it's us today, bitch. Getting the heavy board treatment, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fucking... But yeah, fictional representation of a speech act. That's what he says we don't want to do, right? Um, and I i was kind of like, all right, fictional representation of a speech act. I was just kind of like, Ugh. And I texted, so, you know, what's so wrong with that? And isn't that all writing?
0: I think there's this, the only way I can make sense of this and that I am inclined to agree with this is that there's some idea that there's, a usefulness in imagining in certain cases like, yeah, there are going to be situations where you do truly have like a fictional persona that is trying to project certain characteristics of a fictional speaker. Yeah, sure. Um, There are narrative poems that are not lyric that have characters. Uh, But I think that, maybe you just hear it. It's more, um, I think he's saying that does it help us in this instance to imagine that there is like a specific character who is speaking this poem or is it, um, to like, does it m- matter to imagine where they live in the world and whether they were just recently out of a relationship and that's what spurred this poem. Or whether they, I don't know, the one that comes up in class is usually some kind of abuse by a father. I don't know if that like speaks to what my students are going through.
1: Well, he always, I mean, he later talks about like the lyric. I don't think that's actually. Yeah.
0: I feel like I'm just not, I'm not gonna be able to say this right.
1: Well, like he talks about lyric as an event later, like lyric, the lyric is the event, like the lyric poem. It doesn't have to necessarily be a fictional representation or an actual representation type thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but I just, I mean, it just kind of overcomplicates things to the point where it's like, uh, wait a minute. What are you saying? Yeah, so, well,
0: he gives us this example of this poem that, you know, uh, by, was it? How do you say it? Goethe?
1: I have no idea. If you look
0: at the page, you see the name Goethe.
1: Oh. Uh, I guess it's German. Yeah. Heath Rose?
0: Yeah. Who, um, heath Rose. A youth saw Little Rose standing. Little Rose on the heath. It was so young and morning lovely. He ran quickly to see it close up. Saw it with much joy. Little Rose, Little Rose, Little Rose Red little rose on the heath. I mean, you don't need to read much further to know it doesn't really matter who is telling the story.
1: Yeah. Well, that's where I take a little bit issue because he does go on to that right where he says here, there is no first person or character whose attitudes we have to reconstruct. If we take the the evocation evocation of the rose and the refrain as addressing it, that implies that implies an act of enunciation, but not a subject or a character. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. I've been sick for a few days. So, if we take the avocation of the rose in the refrain as addressing it, that implies an act of enunciation, but not a subject or a character. So he's separating out character versus active enunciation, and this is one of those moments where I'm like, distinction, kind of without a difference. Here.
0: Yeah. This is where I get like, oh, uh, okay. Well, like,
1: and if I were to, to argue, accept this,
0: we have to accept that this is a lyric poem.
1: Right. Yeah. And as we said before, he purposely chooses poems that maybe don't quite fit lyric perfectly to make his argument. He lays that out and grants it. But for me, it was just kind of like, how do we do that, right? Like, How can we make this claim, right? Like, I mean, you could argue... While using
0: non-lyric poems or potentially non-lyric poems?
1: Yeah, we could argue that the youth could be some type of subject or character. We could argue that the rose is some type of subject or character. Uh... And that's, I just kind of overcomplicates this idea here. So
0: going in, what was your understanding of what a lyric is? Maybe we should offer that also Uh, because I think diving in, there was usually some sense that there was a speaker who was an I, like there is an I in the poem, whether it is explicit or implied
1: in this poem
0: just in lyrics in general Uh like that was my part of a really big part of my understanding of what lyric poetry is before reading this
1: yeah i mean i guess i didn't have like a whole like well this is lyric poetry
0: well there's a sense of like the subjective i should say like whether or not there's an i speaker there's at least one implied
1: yeah yeah I, I don't know. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it. There's, we talked about this a little bit with Merwin in terms of what, I don't know what the lyric, what's the difference between lyric and like the other forms. But Well, I think
0: it's just like a collection of characteristics, right? Which, which is,
1: is he why, he Yeah. And he gets into the characteristics, I guess, around chapter three that, like, make up what the lyric genre is, which he calls rituals, which he calls, you know, you could call tradition, you could call, I don't know.
0: Well, he, what is that, lyric as genre, or is that? That's,
1: like, chapter five, six.
0: Yeah, there was only one piece of this <laughs> book that I found particularly interesting. Hmm.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, there's a lot of points that I just put, like, yeah, only an academic could come up with some of this horse shit, dude.
0: Well, for so much talk about, like, seeking to, like, just more openly appreciate poems rather than focus on interpreting, this feels very focused. I do not feel like I was focused a lot on the joy
1: well he overcomplicates that too. I mean the joy that you would get or what he argues that you should be getting Yeah, that's from what it feels like. His strong feels like by
0: doing this we're overcomplicating the yeah. joy of poetry. That's
1: what I mean. Like only an academic could do this. But uh, that's what academic
0: like that's what academics do.
1: Thirty four. Uh well in this first chapter there is that um Zettelman's, the parameters, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of Zettelman's uh, idea. So they have what Zettelman calls what the domain of the lyric. And this is like one of the this is one of the first framings that he goes into where he starts talking about, okay, uh Zettelman, a German theorist describing the domain of the lyric, lists several tendencies that distinguish it from other genres. One, brevity, this is the bottom of page thirty three. Mm-hmm. Two, a reduction of the fictional element. Three, more intense formal structuring. Four, greater aesthetic self-reference. Five, greater linguistic deviance. And six, greater epistemological subjectivity. I was just like, what do, What do you think of those?
0: Yeah, stories? I mean, I think that's kind of accurate. I mean, <laughs> for what I know of lyric poetry, I think that's pretty accurate. I just kind of wrote LOL next to greater linguistic deviance.
1: Yeah, greater. And also,
0: for some reason, next to greater epistemological subjectivity. Yeah. But yeah, these all seem pretty on point.
1: And 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 he he does use the Jesus. Yeah, go. Well,
0: he he does use those, but he like creates his own out of them.
1: Yeah.
0: And these, I don't know, settlements almost seem more obvious to me right so colors for by comparison are the enunciative apparatus um that's an event rather than a representation of an event right so it's non mimetic yeah which she goes on to say that their judgments or assertions not tied to a particular speaker or fictional situation but voiced as truths about the world
1: Dude. <laughs> oh my god, dude.
0: 3 ritual, 4 hyperbolic quality.
1: Right. And then he goes into these uh in chapters. Hyperbole six. I think is
0: a fun one. But I don't know like yeah, I agree in a lot of ways with the idea of the lyric poem as an event rather than An imitation because I don't see much use in, I guess, thinking about it as an imitation of an event. Yeah. Um, I think thinking about it as an event makes more sense of a lot of the rhythmic qualities that he goes on to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, then he talks, like, we'll get to the voice versus voicing, right? Rather than imagine that lyrics embody voices, we do better to say that they create effects of voicing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I put in my eyes. Like, isn't that just describing, like, like, reading?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like,
1: as we read something, we create, like, a, a voice in our head and that that's I texted Sophie about this as we read this throughout the week I was just like uh, I don't know this is getting a little like I can go with him because I think he he's making good points but in between those good points he's just like really just weighing his own argument down with these kind of like unnecessary distinctions without differences or like in the case of voice first voicing I get he's trying to say that like even if there isn't a speaker and or a subject or character We still get this sense of voicing, right? Not exactly like a spoken or fictional voice. We still get this sense of like something speaking or voicing towards us as we read. A
0: consciousness.
1: Consciousness, you could say that, yeah. It's just. Your favorite word. Right. Well, yeah, because it's like our consciousness then projecting it, right? Like it would be our. Or the poems making it happen in you type thing, but it's yeah. I it was just like, is this just like the science of reading? Like we when we read something on a page, like we put a voice to it, like some type of. And thing doesn't to talking
0: it. about it kind of make you want to kill yourself?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like the and the lyrics. Like the I tense. really
0: enjoy reading poems and even writing poems. Talking about. How poems work at this level makes me want to die
1: yeah and this this you know at one point it did make me think of like sentence diagramming right like that's what he, he's like basically like sentence diagramming these yeah. lyrics like
0: not even but like sentence diagramming i enjoy
1: oh really <laughs> i do not that always just makes I kinda me... kind of do. Yeah, makes me just glaze over a little bit. But yeah, it gets to this interaction. But it feels like a
0: puzzle that I'm figuring out if I have to diagram a sentence. And there's a clear answer.
1: And this is where... It's not
0: something that you're parsing... Yeah. ...usage of specific terms over I have to go get some candy because my stomach's growling. Hold right.
1: on. Um, Today's like the first day. I haven't taken any like cold medicine or anything. What? Today's like the first day I haven't taken any like cold medicine or anything.
0: Wow, congratulations.
1: Well, it was cause I didn't think I needed it, you know, like I needed it like the last couple days to like not have a fever. <laughs> like and be like shaky all day. But today, you got the COVID. Yeah, I got the Cove, do the COOF i actually don't know if i do or not because i never tested but i'm feeling better already so been like three day, three days of feeling like shit i feel a little bit better today but i'm moving slow and my brain is working slow i haven't had coffee in a couple of days because i just couldn't Damn. handle it
0: yeah i hate that it, feeling we would just, just dehydrate like, and like you know like my body was indigestion. like digestion
1: it was like my body was like throbbing you know like if i didn't take like Dayquil or like Advil or something like every four uh, to six yeah. hours. Like my body was like throbbing with my fever, kind of thing. So I couldn't even like watch TV on the couch, miserable, like without like taking cold medicine type thing. But I feel a lot better today. But I wanted to get to this because this this idea of the effects of voicing, right? This describe and the example that I used <clears throat> that struck me when I read this was like when our brain creates that aspect, like this is kind of like, you know, wine and cigars type things, right? Like when you say, oh, it tastes like coffee or it has like a coffee note or something in it, right? When you're tasting something, even a chocolate bar or something that has coffee notes or something, right? Like there's not actually coffee. (laughs) Like You're not drinking coffee with wine. You're not like smoking coffee with cigars or whatever. Like, but your brain makes you think that you're tasting that, right? Like it triggers the receptors to make you think that you're tasting coffee. Right. So then my question is like, so which is correct, right? If we think we're tasting coffee, are we tasting coffee? Right. If we think we hear a voice, are we hearing a voice? Right. Like kind of, you know what I'm saying? Or is that too? Yeah.
0: Well, I don't even think it's about hearing a voice. I think it's, yeah, I guess it's like the fictionalizing aspect.
1: Right, and like I the feel fact...
0: obnoxious saying
1: that Well that's what I mean So our brain does that to make sense of written text
0: But like when you read poems Do you imagine like a single person speaking it?
1: No Or do you
0: just hear it? Because like that's the way that I was making sense of what he was saying
1: Like no. do I
0: imagine a specific person Even if there's a specific voice I hear in my head along with it is it attached to anything or is there like some kind of just untethered speaker in my head?
1: Well, that's why I think it gets to the level of if, even if we're not actually thinking that like processing it consciously, like our brain is doing it for us. Right. That's what I mean. So like, is the correct way to go, uh, this tastes like coffee instead of saying it only makes me think of tasting coffee. Like, the kind of, you know, it's like a big, it's like a scientific distinction almost. Like, it's like a, and I get, okay, he's doing this at the academic level trying to make these kind of scientific distinctions, but for something like art, I just, it just is hard, right? It kind of seems like we're spinning tires to make that distinction kind of thing. But, whatever we'll go, you know we go with it for the his theory here the lyrics attempt to be itself an event rather than a representation of an event
0: which whenever you say that you're going to get into a weird space
1: about the event or
0: when you're calling um some language on a page an event right if we want to be real literalists and like be assholes about it we can just say Well, it's words on a page that a poet wrote that are then printed on this page, and we, you know, recreate that in our mind, or aloud if we read out loud.
1: Right. Well, like he says later on, the most striking of these is the presentation of assertions or judgments that are not relativized to a particular speaker or fictional situation but offer it as truths about the world.
0: Yeah. I think of, I mean, uh, what's a good, what's a good one. I'm just trying to think of like a good Emily Dickinson.
1: Uh, he uses a couple Emily Dickinson ones in here, especially Uh, in some of the later chapters, because she is one that walks that line. Right. And I think he uses her in the example when he's talking about song, because hers are so melodic. That they carry you through, without. Well, having...
0: and they're really, they were so often in common meter, weren't they?
1: Yeah, but they were so strikingly like they carry you through, like that always carries you through her stuff, even if there is no particular speaker or fictional situation, right? Which is what he's kind of right. saying. Like I, I, i I'm like, all right, I grant that. Like it's not a crazy thing to say, right? I just get a little nitpicky about how he's kind of stretching some things to fit this theory.
0: But I also think much, uh, there's so much of uh, contemporary poetry that does sort of rely on having a speaker that has a situation.
1: And it goes on
0: that we are supposed to imagine as being to some degree, a specific kind of person you would imagine in the world.
1: Yeah, and he goes on in this in the number three for page 37 in that same section there for his inductive approach. Insofar as lyrics offer not representations of speeches by fictional characters, but memorable writing to be received, reactivated, and repeated by readers, they partake of what I have broadly called the ritualistic, a concept that will become fleshed out as we proceed. And this is where he gets to the ritualistic, right? He's not talking about actual ritual <laughs> like he's not he's using that word in a very specific way. So like and I when I read this I texted so like I read it as like a traditional use of the term ritual or ritualistic and he's a lot of, I like pissed me off for a while until I realized well, what he's... is
0: what does he mean by ritual in your view?
1: So I well I would just take him for his word here. So he said memorable writing to be received, reactivated again reactivated, I don't know what that means. And repeated by readers. They partake of what I have broadly called the ritualistic. So he and this is where it gets a little complicated, but he's talking about like the actual kind of ritualistic or like things that we tend to do when we receive something. Memorize it, enjoy it. Um, you know, like song I think is when he gets to his song example is the best. Kind of. And he goes on. He says, yeah, yeah,
0: that's the thing with all of these. Like, they're so, like, you know, he broadly refers to the category of the ritualistic.
1: Right, well, he says, uh, "I haven't." Pa- right after that, if I stopped reading, but it keeps going, I have in passing noted some ritualistic dimensions of lyric, whether allusions to ritual context, as in Sappho's Ode, love poems as ritualistic complaint, or the centrality of the ritualistic refrain in Goethe's, you know, uh, Heathrow's he puts the german version in there so i can't read it or pronounce it but uh yeah and then he said i have so far scarcely emphasized the forms of linguistic patterning or stanzaic structure that seem to be central to the identity and the functioning of lyric and especially to its hold on readers so then he, because he kind of wants it both ways, right? He wants it to be this thing of like the reader receiving, repeating, and memorizing, but then also the kind of like linguistic patterning, stanzaic structure, all this kind of thing goes into the ritualistic too, so. But that
0: also goes into the enunciation, or enunciative apparatus.
1: Yeah, and they all bleed into each other, like he makes that clear, right. like, you know, that's, you know, okay, I'll, you know, that's fine. Yeah, they do. Grant that, yeah. They have to. Yeah, I mean, at, at this level too. It's like, that
0: one that I get hung up on though.
1: Yeah, well, at this it's level. It's that one
0: that I don't take issue with it so much as I don't feel like I grasp it as much as I'd like to.
1: Well, he makes it hard to grasp because, again, I would say in this instance, just like everything else, he's overcomplicating it. But it's important to note, yeah, I mean, for listeners, too, like, uh, we have smart listeners, right? All three of them, so they know. Uh, yeah, we it's, know. It's impossible to kind of separate a lot of this. Stuff. It's like when we talk about genres and stuff, like... This stuff bleeds it bleeds into one another. Okay, like it is not, especially when it comes to art. We try to separate it. It's hard, man. It's it's not a nice clean cut thing that we can put aside. It's always going to be intertwined with the other aspects. And he he grants that in the introduction. He grants that in this first chapter. And he grants it as he goes along, you know, that they all kind of bleed into one another.
0: The thing is, it's also so easy for me. It takes me days after reading to come down from, like, I don't know what to call it, like a high of reading some academic that I presume to be, well, who is better read than me and who I presume to be smarter than me. And it's hard to disagree with something when you're living in that space. So, I think I was also uncertain of myself as I was like reading about ritual and like trying to figure it out and feeling like really insecure about my ability to grasp this material. And I would just say that, you know, being days out of it, I'm able to look at it with a more critical eye.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, I like that's what I like too is when we do these pods. And then when we talk about it, like Sophie and I are texting all week kind of as we read through this stuff, talking about it, because, you know, in a book like, like The Twilight, we were just kind of making fun. like We didn't have to go like deep dives and argue over things like, what's he saying here? What's his definition? But for this one, it just, yeah, I mean, even days after reading, like you do, we were talking yesterday, even before recording, and then I started adding notes to the end of mine here and be like, yeah, what am I thinking about this kind of, you know, I mean, and I, We've said this before, I'll say it every time, and this is what makes talking about art fun. Like, (laughs) I mean, this is... Yeah, well, it's also
0: hard to critique what you don't feel you understand.
1: That too, yeah. Uh, And I guess his last little bit here is the hyperbolic quality. What do we think?
0: Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with the hyperbolic quality.
1: I agree too. My one little thing that I'm going to weasel my like stubborn, uh, pain in the ass uh, shit is. Yeah, into I might have one too. Is Go ahead. Hyperbolic is just kind of describing metaphor, right? Like, he it could kinda, just say metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and I get he could,
0: means
1: like extreme. I think he could very
0: easily make that argument. Um, but yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, let's be generous. Yeah, I would. Yeah.
0: W- yeah. I, I think he means extreme the same.
1: metaphor yeah. or like things that, you know, an original or even wild... well, it doesn't
0: even have to be metaphor. It could be something like, I feel like rhythm can have an effect that makes something feel more okay. hyperbolic than it might actually be. For example, right. like if yeah, something yeah, yeah. has a, a bouncy rhythm to it, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah he does. He does. Did you, he does bring that Hopkins uh, sprung rhythm into this eventually here. Yeah. I did glaze over during some of the meter sections. Uh, listeners will come familiar that a meter just kind of always drives me crazy, mainly because my brain has a hard time understanding it the way they want me to. But
0: I get really interested in reading about meter, but it has to be well broken up with a lot of example poems. So whenever we got into places where he was doing long paragraphs in between those example poems, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm falling off.
1: Right. And he he grants, right? Like, yeah, this could be anything. This could just be an exaggeration. This could be hyperbolic. It also
0: begins to feel like, okay, we've had a lot of... Like, it's really helpful to a degree to have multiple examples, especially when... Um, they each one builds on the next or like adds a new element but after a certain point in each chapter I kept feeling like I'm not sure I'm getting anything new
1: yeah listeners this is a text that you could easily skim if you were taking it out for like a an essay or like a thesis You could easily read like the first couple paragraphs, skim, and then hit the last couple of paragraphs in each chapter and probably not miss much unless you really want to get into the nitty gritty stuff, which, you know, hey, this is a book podcast, so we want to do that. So go for it if that's you. Except this time. Yeah. (laughs) The last. Well, if we did it with this one, dude, it would be like a seven hour fucking podcast. And
0: it'd be impossible. Yeah.
1: This is just we're just chatting. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to hit in chapter one before I move to the lyric is genre. Chapter two, he talks about the spiritual dimension. Uh, so he says lyrics seek, and this is at the end of the um, page thirty-eight, last bit of the uh, the big paragraph. He says lyrics seek to re- to remake the universe as a world, giving a spiritual dimension to matter. This aspect of lyric should not be neglected since it often provides the motive for readers finding lyric words, memorable and letting them inform experience that I found very interesting. And I think he doesn't go into that enough towards the end of this. I was expecting him to come back around to this spiritual cause he kind of lays down in this first chapter, each section he's going to hit, you know? <clears throat> and that's why we're spending so much time on the first chapter listeners, but it's like, I just, and I I kind of, you know, I don't like the word spiritual, but at the same time, I understand what he's getting at, right? Like, there is this, we talked about this a little bit with Lerner. Like, there's an inherent kind of reverence to poetry. And maybe that comes out of because of, like, the religious context of it, the celebration context, maybe that's why. But, like, there's this inherent thing that we all just kind of associate with it. And then, you know, when you read something and it gives you this warm feeling, this good feeling, this, you know, whatever you're getting out of it, your pleasure or even joy, as color would call it, like, what do we call that, right? Like, other than spiritual, like, it's instinctual to call that some type of spiritual thing, because it's like, we can't grab onto it, we can't hold it, like, we can't, like, point to it and be like, hey, look at this here and measure it, like... And it is a very important aspect to this type of art. Really all art, but, you know, in poetry. And I just, yeah, what do you think of that? I don't know.
0: I think it's like a really, I mean, I think it's almost vague.
1: It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: Um, and hard to even say anything about. But when you're talking about, like, the spiritual, giving a spiritual dimension to matter.
1: Right, yeah,
0: right? yeah. I mean, he comes out of talking about, uh, I was, I had to look back at this, um, talking about how, like, you know, lyric poets might invest a lot of meaning into, like, single objects or moments. yeah. Or places. Um, or,
1: like you said, if the lyric is an event, right, in itself, well, it's a spiritual event. You think back to the romantics that make it maybe a little obvious for readers, where, you know, you just a poem about a tree or something like that, right? Like it's a spiritual, they're not talking about the tree, they're talking about the connection yeah living things have to the tree or whatever it is if you know if it's even that
0: i think it's such a hard thing to talk about like it's Um, i mean it's the one thing that poets i think most want to talk about too
1: well because it does hold a lot of especially when we get to lyrics so we're not trying to make logical sense of a narrative we're not trying to make sense of a character in our heads it's something else you know well and this is why i
0: think that there is such a fascination with the uh poem about poems poem well, that, about that poetry. too
1: yeah he mentions that yeah at some point the lyrics tend to be about poetry writing sometimes right now very we could often. Get, yeah we could get very scientific about it if we wanted to like you know we don't understand this necessarily but most writers know that right like we don't exactly know where it comes from in our head but it comes out of our head right at some point like and this complicates things but i just giving that spiritual dimension that kind of intangible thing that we can feel but we can't see it or touch it and we like i'm just i think that's incredibly fascinating i wish he would go into it more but like sophie said i kind of understand because it's so hard to make like an academic style argument about
0: it's what i think um merwin refers to as I think he's quoting Emerson, but what Merwin refers to as wildness.
1: Wildness? Yeah. The thing,
0: like a sense of something just got away. That something just gets away from you.
1: Yeah, and like he said, you know, it shouldn't be neglected or just dismissed either. And I think this is also what could lead to a danger because it can lead us to romanticize this beyond what it is.
0: Well, because I think it's inherently kind of romantic.
1: Yeah, it it is. is. Yeah.
0: Spirit, you know, the idea of the spiritual nature of anything and romanticizing something, I think, go easily together. And maybe I'm conflating them a little bit. Yeah. But Uh, I kind of don't care about splitting those hairs in this moment.
1: And, uh, all right, yeah, we can move on then. Chapter two. Lyric is genre. I didn't have a whole lot in this section that I would, you know, this kind of genre aspect, rules. I was going to ask, you know, what is genre or how would we define it? Like,
0: I think kind is an adequate word
1: for genre, kind, kind type, type, yeah.
0: category,
1: right? That's what I said, you know, this are they thing rules? is like these other right. things. <laughs>
0: So, I, I mean, I think that there are, you know, defined genres that we tend to keep using, keep changing, borrow from, mix with other genres.
1: Yeah, and he grants that. Like, he, he grants that that in a lot of areas. But that's what but, I yeah. was thinking. Yeah, they just general In terms rules. of
0: literature... It's a group, a, a category, of whatever kind of literature we're looking at that tends to adhere to right. a certain set of—I don't know—guidelines.
1: Yeah, he says on page forty-two. Tendencies. Yeah, and he sa- and I agree with that. Like, it's—it it is. It, I called it. It's bootstrapping, right? Like, this is what genre is a useful. Tool to talk about things that are difficult or like are messy or like we have to it's like you well, know, a way of talking about things a little neater than just all over the place
0: well I think it's also important in terms of like distinguishing poetry from fiction when you get into sub genres that's when things tend to get a lot messier I think into mixed genres but even then things tend to fall more one way or the other at least according to public opinion
1: yeah he says uh, i forget who he's quoting here but he just quoted somebody and then he's talking about their oppositions he says his opposition to the notion of genre was based on the concept of genre as rule where obeying the rules of genres as in neoclassicism violates the creative spirit of literature so genres oppress and stifle creativity you know if it is true as Jameson claims that genre criticism has been discredited what has been discredited is first the notion of a genre as a set of rules that a literary work ought to follow and second the idea that a purpose of generic categories is to classify works to tell us whether this piece of literature is in fact a novel or an anti-novel for example yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, I agree with that for the most part. Like they're just, you know, and I, that's why I said bootstrap, like, This is bootstrapping. Like we can go, we can be like, well, it's not really that we can deconstruct all we want, but eventually you hit bedrock, right? Like eventually you really can't go any further and you have to pull those bootstraps and be like, well, this is lyric for the most part. Okay. <laughs> this is drama. Like, you know, that you just have to do that. And this is where, and on page 44, he goes on, he says, The question of genre is largely a question of which categories are most useful, most likely to provide insight into the history of the literary tradition and the functioning of literature. And I think that's true. I think that's him saying what the aim of this is when he's talking about lyric as genre, right? What is most useful, most likely to provide insight into the history of the literary tradition and the functioning of literature? So, it's kind of a scientific way to talk about it, but it is kind of what we use genre for, right? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what do you, yeah, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) This fucking book. To classify
0: things, to say this is what this is. (laughs) This is therefore the kind of thing that I like.
1: Yeah. And I had another question here because I didn't want to spend too much time on genre because he gets, the genre chapter is incredibly long
0: so fucking long
1: uh, and he gets into the historical categories he uses some good examples, right uh, but yeah I was just kind of getting into like, you know, what does this add one last, let me see what I, I didn't want to just go all over the place but I had he uses this example of detective fiction which is an easy thing for people yeah. to understand right, so page 47 there in the middle of that big paragraph as a genre, detective fiction is both a historical tradition, though always being reconceived or reconstructed, and at certain times a functional, constitutive category for writers who set out to write a detective story. This is albeit one that may tweak or parody the conventions of the genre, and for readers who read a text as a detective story and may be gratified or disappointed by the way in which a given text relates to the genre. The fact that one may read a given text as an autobiography or as a novel indicates that there are historical traditions with which the work may be allied and categories that are constitutive constitutive for reading and writing within a given cultural situation. So complicated way of saying that, like, you know, genres just make it easier for us to recognize for readers and writers, right? And it's usually some type of engaging with convention, tradition, what he would call the ritualistic yeah, of the genre. like it's
0: helpful to know if you're reading nonfiction or you know, <laughs> yeah, creative,
1: is this a non like historical
0: book? <laughs> fiction? You know,
1: yeah, yeah do you people thinking these Stephen King books are real or whatever? Like, yeah, like, well, I thought it was non-fiction. yeah, that's an obvious example, but yeah, that's like a complicated it is also way.
0: sometimes apparently unhelpful to know if you are reading nonfiction or poetry. <laughs> That's another problem for another day.
1: And it, yeah, he gets even more complicated, right? Like the theory of genre is an abstract model, an account of a set of norms or structural possibilities that historically underlie and enable the production and reception of literature. So this is another complicated way of saying what we already said.
0: Yeah, we keep doing it because yeah. we look back at what's been done and say, oh, I'm going to try that. Right. Maybe I'm going to change some stuff.
1: And then my question as we get out of this, I don't want to spend too much time unless you wanted to, anything in the lyric is genre, was just, you know, what do we think color's argument adds to the genre debate?
0: Is he adding to the genre debate or is he just suggesting that in his view it's helpful and there or we should like kind of care about what lyrics do as a genre? Like you have to, I guess, care that genre is a thing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he goes pretty extensively In order into... to then
0: go into the history of this very specific genre. Say that this is what the goal of understanding genre is.
1: I mean, he goes pretty extensively into why he thinks the lyric genre matters. And again, it kind of comes back to this. He wants to make sure that it includes this not using this you know, narrativeizing interpretation model.
0: So does that mean we can skip over this?
1: Yeah. I mean, we can skip it.
0: I mean, what else are we saying about this? Like he, the claim is then that a broad conception of lyric as genre is helpful for thinking about short non-narrative poetry permitting exploration of its historical tradition, making salient its discursive strategies and possibilities in a range of periods and languages.
1: Yeah. The conception of the lyric that enables us to understand a poem's language by imagining that we are hearing the voice of a speaking subject is not a contingent strategy, but a potent reality of our engagement with the world. So he's trying to broaden genre, like the lyric is genre. Yeah. Type thing.
0: He's trying to create. I mean, it's so annoying because he's like, "It's this is by no means comprehensive, but also I want to broaden it
1: uh. <laughs> to include all of these
0: theories, but it's not comprehensive."
1: Yeah, I guess I had that was it for me. I'm say Seventy-two. Yeah. Theories. Chapter
0: 3 isn't until 91.
1: Yeah. Theories of the Lyric.
0: Which is when he starts talking about Heidegger. I would be so happy to just skip over so much of this.
1: Yeah, dude. I don't, I don't want to talk I mean, about those philosophers or any of this bullshit. But they, they just get into like the interpretation versus appreciation,
0: performative
1: versus performance. Yeah.
0: Despite the centrality of subjectivity to his account of the essential nature of lyric subjectivity functions as a principle of unity rather than a principle of individuation well yeah
1: yeah like i said there's a lot of distinction without a difference in this what he's talking about determining what the eye is in lyric what does it tell us <sighs> you beat yet i just this idea that like <clears throat> a poem composed by a poet is somehow not an enunciation of the poet, you know, I find a little baffling.
0: Well, I don't think, I mean, I think that's like, I don't, but that's like saying is a work of fiction, like just, because it's such a specific thing, right? It's like you have a speaker in a poem. I don't assume that that speaker is the poet. I think we tend... To assume uh, there isn't, like, I don't I'd think that every that. time I read one of these, like, lofty claims that a poem makes, that that is the true claim of the person who wrote it, even if it's supposed to be what I believe the speaker believes.
1: Well, not like that it's, like, them personally claiming or that's what it is in the poem, but I just mean, like, you know, the act of doing it, like, they are enunciating from themselves even if it's not them speaking or persona speaking, right? Sure. I I find it hard to suggest that unless you do these kind of, you know, backflips to be like, well, well, well. Because I'm not going to argue that, oh, it's just them, you know, just them expressing themselves. I'm not going to be like that elementary about it. But I do think that it takes a little bit of like we're separating unnecessary separation between writer and then the product of that. But if he's arguing that like, we need to not use that for interpretation, I see why he makes that But then if
0: you do that, you can't like write. Well, yeah, I get what you're saying. I think that it's helpful to be able to separate those things because you can want to write in like the persona of like a really shitty person. Which it might be its own thing, but if it's still, like... I would argue in many cases that still ends up taking a lyric form. Yeah. So it helps to be like, I am not the shitty person who actually means this. This is, like, a Uh thing that I'm creating that believes these things. So, like, I think what you're saying is, like, it's easier to think of it as, like, some kind of persona or as a character then to just sort of write that off and say it's this untethered entity that is like lifting off the page and you know
1: well i'm arguing that it's some takes... kind
0: of yeah. consciousness or subjectivity or whatever word you want to insert here one of the words that you that just it, really dislike
1: that it takes more work to do that than it does yeah to to
0: Make that distinction while also calling it a persona.
1: Right, it takes more work, kind of thing.
0: Or just
1: a speaker. Right. All right. Let's see. I want to blow through this because we're getting bored as shit, readers. This is boring as shit. I marked things, but I was like, I didn't take the notes here. Let's see what I want to hit.
0: Um. Let's see. Wow, says, I have so many notes that are just like Plato again Aristotle again Heidegger Heidegger sucks
1: Yeah.
0: Hegel <laughs> That's so like all the way up to page like
1: 96 He says lyrics are constructed for repetition On page 123 What do we think?
0: Oh I think repetition super important Hang on
1: I think he means like They're constructed for people to be able to re- repeat Or Recite.
0: Did you say 143?
1: Uh, 123.
0: Uh, 123.
1: I think 143, he's getting into the meter stuff where I glazed over. yeah,
0: yeah. Lyrics are constructed for repetition. The principle of iterability. Lyrics are constructed for repetition, along with certain ceremoniousness and the possibility of making something happen in the world.
1: Right, so he's like practitioner of rituals kind of thing. I mean, I get it. Yeah. It's like most things, right? Like, most things are, are written for an audience. I mean, you want something like that. I think he makes a good point with the advertising. He takes, like, a simple look. Yeah, like... well, I
0: think, I mean, I think the idea that of repetition within the poem itself and the idea that the poem exists in large part to be repeated... By other people are really closely connected right because repetition in the poem whether it's a rhythm meter particular phrase whether or not there's rhyme those are all things that lend itself to memorability
1: right which is why the song is always the strongest thing that he used I think where like when you hear a song and you get it stuck in your head you don't necessarily know the meaning you don't necessarily know how it's constructed all this other stuff but you know that like you know the repeated like chorus or whatever it is you know
0: So he's talking about Roland Greene's concept of the ritualistic dimension of lyric yeah so it's his idea the principle of iterability that they are constructed for repetition yeah so i do think that you're right um but it's hard to distinguish those two things whether they're talking about repetition within the poem or to be repeated by other people as in to be read and spoken by other
1: i think in that context he means like repeated spoken by other people but yeah it's uh yeah
0: yeah i guess because it's talking about in the context of performative and performance i didn't have a lot written on this chapter
1: yeah dude it's it's annoying and rhythm and repetition there were sections where i was glazing over because of like as they were break and then he was breaking them down across the page and like those spaced out things i was like oh my god like i said sentence diagramming And that's where I always get too... Yeah, well, some of
0: it is that, when it's, like, showing you scansion, right? Right. Like, that's when your eyes are glazing over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where do you want to jump in?
1: He goes to this, like, rhythm is an event without representation. Again,
0: which is, like, such a vague thing. (laughs) It's so vague. It's so hard to pin down.
1: Yeah, well, because the rhythm is, like, you know... That maybe, which is like, uh, when we find rhythm in language, it enlists us in a process in ways uh, that other texts do not, which is one reason why rhythm may be what is most salient to, in lyrics. So like he said, rhythm, you know, all these other forms of writing, rhythm is the most important to lyric. Yeah. And he quotes Fry a little bit. We talked about Fry a little bit on the uh, Bloom episode all that kind of stuff but he gets to this idea i'm trying to find it where he says the craving of um for like metrical or like the rhythmic kind of sounds like i don't know this again comparing to the sound we'll just skip to the meter section page 142
0: to 143 okay
1: so he says in the very part, beginning of this meter section he says the problem of the relation between rhythm and meter is a venerable one among the greeks there are there was already a division between the uh oh my god what is that rhythmicoi and metricoi sure the former saw poetic rhythm as related to music a temporal okay. art and the latter treated it as a metrical structure what do we think of that My thoughts were just, they're the same.
0: (laughs) I don't think rhythm and meter are the same. I think meter is just part of rhythm, right? Because a poem can still have rhythm if it doesn't have meter. But if it has meter, it hopefully fucking has rhythm. If it has meter and not rhythm, you're probably doing it wrong.
1: It depends on the structure, I guess.
0: Because we have rhythm without language, right? Right. But rhythm is an event without representation. Like, it's such a vague thing, but it's kind of true.
1: Yeah, and he gives this... Because qu- you
0: just, you hear rhythm in things. Yeah. Right? Even if it's not there, you can, like, kind of create it. You don't tie it to one specific thing. But, like, you think of your heartbeat as a rhythm.
1: Yeah. Over the past, it is this quote from Brogan from the Princeton encyclopedias on prosody. Prosody. Prosody prosody the fuck Said over the past century there has been a general perception that prosody is a desiccated subject a stony little patch of ground frequented only by eccentrics fanatics and pedants 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 Pedants. the indis the indicments are easy to finger verse theory took nearly two millennia to free itself from the the the, 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 tier, the, the treat, whew. Where detritus detrit, you? detritus Page 143 yeah
0: it's detritus
1: <clears throat> uh to finger verse theory took nearly two millennia to free itself from the detritus of classical prosody it has never been able to to give even an adequate theory of meter It has been unable to agree on not merely concepts and terms, but underlying assumptions about the nature of poetry itself, text, performance, experience. It has been too willing to base theory on whatever versions of linguistics have been current. It has too often failed to distinguish linguistic processes from artistic conventions, yet the failure to give final answers is not proof that the questions are trivial, quite the contrary. Verse structure lies at the very core of our understanding of poetry." What to do, then? <laughs> <laughs> An account of, lyric How predica- coy. Yeah.
0: account of lyric predicated on the centrality of rhythm to the distinctiveness and the attractions of the form needs at least to identify problems to be avoided and offer some indications of ways of thinking about the contribution of meter to verse structure that might be especially relevant to lyric.
1: Yeah, I mean, I glazed over at the meter part, dude.
0: Well, okay, so is he just saying here that while meter isn't necessarily central to the lyric, but rhythm is, it is reasonable that we would look at the usefulness of meter as part of understanding rhythm and its centrality? That felt very long-winded.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess...
0: Needs at least to identify problems to be avoided and offer. So problems in trying to um, account for rhythm and define rhythm's role, I guess. We can't define it. We can't, or not precisely, and we can't... um, we can identify the problems with the ways that we have defined it in the past. Yeah. Is I mean, am I understanding that? I mean, like I actually don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know either, dude. I mean, like I said, I glazed over for most of this chapter here until you got to like the rhythm aspect, the rhythmical language.
0: Oh dude. I was out of here at like chapter two. <laughs> the time I got like midway through chapter two, I was like, I'm so fucking done. Yeah,
1: this is pretty rough, dude. Uh, but his idea of. I was gonna ask, like, yeah, what you thought of the craving for the rhythmic language.
0: I mean, yeah, that's everything. I think yeah. fucking every poet is just like a failed musician. They wanted to be a musician, we couldn't do it. We're just, we're pussies and we're ugly uh-huh. and we don't want to be seen
1: yeah it's it. this is where I get to kind of it feels like a lament so on page 173 at the top of the page he talks about rap music he says the unexpected rise of rap a form of heavily rhythmical language that relies on rhythm and imagery and its enormous persisting popularity among the young of all social strata suggests a hunger for rhythmic language that might find some satisfaction in lyric if poems were differently conceived and presented. The fact that rhythmic language could, to some extent, replace melodic language in the affections of the young seems a sign of the profound appeal of patterned language, and perhaps a, mon- a monitory lesson for modern poetry that has abandoned the more explicit forms of linguistic patterning, including meter and vigorous rhythm. And this gets back, I think, I think he's right, right? That there's a craving for the kind of rhythmic language and things like that. But this gets back to another reason. Like, it's like, well, why isn't people reading lyric or appreciating lyric? It's like, well, we get that in rap music now. Like, why would we...
0: And if you're not rapping, you know, maybe you've discovered a uh, spoken word.
1: Yeah, but even that, like, it's not as rhythmic. Like,
0: it's very, yeah, it's not. Yeah. it's different.
1: It's like, but
0: it, it is, it, but it does have a very specific rhythm.
1: Yeah, but it's all the same rhythm with that joke in park and rec it
0: feels yeah it feels less like rhythm than it does emphasis
1: like, everything could be sounding like a slam poem when you say it like this kind of yeah like, it was like that bit yeah. on parks and rec
0: everything is a slam poem if you say it like this
1: yeah and you can move your hands around while you say it uh yeah but yeah whatever and then you gets the sound and repetition. I was just like, this is more of the same.
0: Yeah, The whole thing is, well, so like every chapter you just sort of get a new set of definitions that also now include the previous set of definitions. So now you're sort of, it builds, you know, just not to something that like I really want to spend my time on anymore.
1: Well, he talks about how, like, the sound and, like, the patterning is what really does it for us. So, like, not just, like, the sounds by themselves, but the sounds given a pattern and a structure. What you would yeah. call the ritualistic is what gives us the, the so memorable So now that musical is surface. what's the
0: ritualistic. So right. he is talking about stuff that's internal to the poem and not just the ritual of right. writing the poem or the ritual of repeating the poem. Right. So, again, very broad.
1: Right, and he talks a little bit about this and then sound at the expense of meaning.
0: Yeah, what page is that on?
1: Uh, Page 181 is when he goes into this. He gives us an example, but at the... says, Poets in the 20th century often fought shy of rhyme, not as a constraint on expression, but as a mark of commitment to sound at the expense of meaning. Which I guess he's just kind of arguing is like a, f- a yeah. factor in lyric, right?
0: Oh, uh, because, yeah, because, well, is he saying that they sort of railed against using rhyme because, uh, sorry, um, they fought against using rhyme because they saw it as constricting their word choice, basically? Yeah. So I'm not going to rhyme because I'm going to choose the word that says this best instead of the word that just sounds the best. Which to me is a bad choice.
1: Well, that's what he said. So it's like part of the lyric would be to be emphasize the sound over the, like you said, the best word type thing over meaning. I was just like thoughts. Like, what do we think about that? I mean, I think that has a place. Like, yeah. Yeah
0: for sure. I think, I think Yeah, go for it. No, well, you go first.
1: I just, it has a place, like it has a place in poetry, so like specifically in the lyric genre as as colors trying to talk about here.
0: I think rhyme is really particular. I think if you expanded that to other sort of sound repetitions that maybe aren't clearly rhyme but might be assonance or consonants things that also lend themselves, that maybe are not specific to rhythm, but are tools that can help create rhythm or create memorability or create the experience of pleasure when you are reading. Yeah, I think that's all really important to poetry. I think that to avoid sound, avoid attention to sound in poetry is almost to avoid poetry.
1: I mean, it is, yeah, absolutely. But, like, yeah, the lyric can give you another way to create that, I guess. And, I like, he uses that thing, like, advertising, I thought was a good example that he used, where he did the Oscar Mayer Wiener song, where it's just, like, people that have never heard that song, like, know it. They could sing it to you right now if you asked them to. Like, that song was at advertising campaign for Oscar Mayer fucking wieners uh, before I was born, dude. And I could sing the entire song. Like, I've never seen the commercial because it didn't air after I was born. But
0: Oh, I wish I had an Oscar Mayer wiener?
1: Yeah, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, right? Oh, well, I wish I were. Yeah. I wish I had an <laughs> I I Oscar Mayer penis envy.
0: Yeah, there you go. A
1: penis envy coming out.
0: Yeah, I got a lot of uh, Oscar Mayer Wiener
1: jokes as a child. That's right, yeah. The Wiener, the Wiener. Yeah, like he, uh, and then he does this last example on top of that with like the rhyme. <clears throat> we all know this, we all remember it. And then, of course, in advertising, it makes us remember the product and buy it. But for the, you know, it does the same thing in poetry. Like he's like, the, you know, advertising is taking this from the, the lyric genre is what he's arguing. But the bottom of page 184, he goes on to uh, give this little, uh, he said in a wonderful book, Precious Nonsense, now largely neglected, Stephen Booth uses the examples of nursery rhymes to illustrate poems' ability to let us understand something that does not make sense as if it did make sense. We seem to take pleasure in accepting nonsense, he writes, as sense is usual among us what is the attraction of this strange jingle that we do not, that we don't understand one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready and four to go. Right. Kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just how else like it, without getting into like, I don't know. I would need to like read or like watch something on the science of why we enjoy shit.
1: What's what I mean? It's, but I think it's scientific. like just that it's
0: like a pleasurable experience. Yeah, and in this, the same way that songs are a pleasurable experience.
1: Yeah, and there's been arguments in music and stuff like pleasurable sounds. So like so like C, C chords, G chords, like these kind of sequences and keys, like which is the most pleasurable to the ear? There's been arguments about this between C and G and like the sequence that goes into those keys. What is the most pleasurable sounding to us? Well, and we it can be it.
0: pleasurable in the mouth. Or enough, like too. in the thing that wants to say things
1: <laughs> well, He calls it the enchantment The of thing rhymes. that
0: wants to say things Yeah Because yeah, that's like all, the only way you can define this shit As someone who studies poetry And not a, like a scientist Hold up, I gotta grab a charger He says something that, about neglecting the unit of the stanza
1: Right, which lyrics tend to do, right?
0: 144 The focus on the metrical line has led to a relative neglect of the unit of the stanza. I have to go back a page to see the beginning of the sentence. In general, the poetic line is the major unit of meter, with a meter defining a line as a certain combination of contrasts, Uh, generally duple or ternary, ternary? And lines sometimes combining into larger metrical units, such as couplets or stanzas, though the focus. Okay, so he's just saying that we're not paying attention to whether something is written. Well, people tend to focus on whether something is written in couplets because it's obvious, but like we're not focusing on whether it's like a six line stanza and what that means to the poem. And like we're focusing on lines.
1: Our stanza's
0: neglected. Do we care?
1: I mean, I guess he's arguing that they are in contemporary work. And the lyric is... Uses all of it. I don't know.
0: Oh, fuck it. Because,
1: like you said before, I think a lot of this is just arguing with... Some type of contemporary notions of poetry.
0: That he won't name.
1: Right, that he won't name, yeah.
0: I won't really clearly specify. I wish that you would just come out and be like, look, this is the shit we're doing I don't like. This is what... I, it, I don't know. I'm Maybe I'm just like assuming that there was some issue that drove him to this, but he's been doing it so long that he could well just be obsessed with this genre. And like, in the same way that a poet is... Might be really attracted to writing poems specifically about poetry. He's just really attracted to the study of how to define or understand or appreciate this particular genre. Yeah. The other thing, the only other thing that he says, and (laughs) it's the last note I have before I gave up for real on like really fully typing out my notes, was on 168 and i guess he says something about meaning potentially being subordinate to rhythm experientially it is often the case that the that that meaning is subordinate to rhythm at least in the sense that what attracts us to a poem is its rhythm not its meaning which may be rather banal so at the top of 168 but i thought that was true
1: yeah, I mean, he says a lot of true things. That's the thing is this whole book is like there's not a lot of stuff. That a bunch of true shit. Yeah, that isn't like known though either kind of like.
0: Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's just like sort of really um, getting into the, it's just splitting hairs over those issues and go diving into the history and trying to give it context. And then maybe pointing, it's way too much. And then maybe pointing out where we've come to some maybe wrong conclusions. Yeah. And it all makes it kind of a boring read. But again, we're not. (laughs) This isn't something you read for, like, this isn't something you're going to read for pleasure. You're going to read it because you work in this field.
1: You want to move to lyric address or?
0: I think we move to conclusion. Okay. Yeah. Or if there's anything in lyric and society. Uh, no. That you really care to touch on, <laughs> but it yeah. just, from what I saw, it looked like a reiteration of all the previous points and why that is yeah. relevant
1: from what I saw, it looked like more of Which just... is
0: like, why is it fucking... Who are you trying to convince
1: uh.
0: that it's relevant? But like, it's not... It's hardly... It's relevant to the people who read it and virtually no one else.
1: And this is what we talk about all the time on this. Like, this idea that we can just write an argument and then we're going to argue, like, why people should be reading poetry more or buying the books, or studying it, or something, like, and then we give all these excuses as to why people don't do it now, so it's the way we teach it, it's the way we think about it, Well, it's like, uh, we just have other options now, like, we have, like you said, we have rap music that gives us, like, sometimes incredibly intricate patterning, and sound patterning, like, you know, like, we have movies and tv that give us more entertainment than like reading the romantic lyric i think yeah
0: and i think there's something to be said for giving poems a chance you know i think we tend not to i think there's something to be said for like giving reading a chance yeah Uh, i think that poetry can strengthen you as a reader in a lot of ways and it's really good for that it can strengthen you as a writer yeah um but like why it just feels like we're (laughs) why are you arguing to an academic community that this is relevant who are you telling
1: yeah in the conclusion he says the kind of interpretation versus the ritualistic dimensions Bottom of page three fifty since most of ap- I guess I should be in, uh, my microphone, I okay, us fix it since most approaches to lyric poetry have assumed that interpretation is reader's proper goal and focused on techniques of interpretation which generally depend upon fictional and thematic elements. I have highlighted the ritualistic dimensions of lyric, rhythm, lyric address, and invocation, and sound patterning of all kinds. These incantatory elements are very often what initially attracts us to a poem, prior to exploration of its meaning, and of course they are what makes what make lyrics different from prose reflections on the world.
0: Where are you? What page?
1: Three fifty, bottom of three fifty. We yeah. interpretation versus what he calls the ritualistic dimensions. Yeah. So, like, again, it's the conclusion is he's saying the same thing he said already, basically.
0: Here's the thing. First, you need to get readers of poetry to read poems and, like, Uh. understand the basic things before you can get to the part about, you know, meter and... types of address. Yeah. So I can understand, like... I think it's kind of obvious once you get to a certain level that just, you know, the base level isn't enough to, you know, write your whole fucking thesis.
1: Well, this is why I was, I was wishing that he'd go more into the spiritual aspect of it, because when he's saying this, you know, it's prior to exploration of its meaning are the ritualistic elements that he's listed that we notice first type. It's
0: the fun stuff.
1: Yeah, and so like I wish he would go more into that aspect like this automatic connection that he calls some type of spiritual it feels
0: so important that if it like if it uh, he says what musicality authenticates poetry if it's so central I mean I guess it does come pretty late in the book to be like bam you know but I also kind of wish that we spent more time just like on that as a driving piece of his argument
1: yeah and then when you go to this conclusion he really doesn't touch on a lot of what he would spent so much time on in this i.e. the historical models that he goes through in chapter 2 mainly the last thing <clears throat> is that he goes on that connection between song and lyric which I think is his strongest point page 352 uh, first full paragraph there, in middle of the page, where it says, "I suggested in the introduction that the historical connection of lyric with song might provide a solitary corrective model for thinking about this literary form with song, we allow ourselves to be seduced without much guilt by sensuous form and to dwell in the realm of sonorous patterning without an insistent quest for the meaning." but this does not imply that our discriminating faculties are somehow switched off, as Fry suggests in his discussion of charms. In our engagement with song, as we pursue our pleasure, we develop considerable expertise, knowledge of what we like and what we dislike, a sense of affinities among particular singers and composers and of different types of music, without necessarily trying to interpret particular musical texts. Something comparable ought to be possible in the realm of poetry, attending to our pleasure while also gaining confidence in our ability to appreciate what secured our attention.
0: Yeah. I mean, this feels so much more important to me here at the end. Like, I just feel like this would have been a more interesting book.
1: Well, that's what I mean. Like that's what I, and that
0: he could have used like these other um, pieces or models or, parameters and peppered them in where necessary. But I think that the part about musicality as central and that being tied to the idea of the lyric as an event is a much more readable book.
1: Yeah. And that was really my thing overall. Like I think there was just a little too much time Spent on the history, the like the history of it, and like overall, I just wish it would have explained a theory of the lyric more instead of summarizing the kind of complete history of frameworks. While there is some utility in that, it was really overkill, you know. Like, I think his rhythm arguments are some of the strongest. He loses me at the whole, like, you know, hyperbole aspect. I think he's just describing metaphor and stuff like that, but well,
0: that's why I mean. Like so much of this could have been oriented within talking about musicality.
1: Yeah. But I guess, it I mean, is maybe some only... of
0: it isn't like, you know, if you, if you get into like different kinds of lyric address, I still think they're, you know, I don't know. Cause I'm not a scholar. But I could have spent a little less time. Like it feels like I read a couple different books, and this is like a totally solid book that you like. You could use to defend your, you know, shitty junior year uh, explication paper. You know, thesis. thesis. Whatever. Yeah, that's probably more of an honors thesis thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, dude, if I hadn't gone to grad school, I wouldn't even be able to make sense of this book. Like,
0: I mean, we barely do. Yeah,
1: that's what I mean. So it's it's not... This is but for a very so particular much of audience. It, is just,
0: it depends on how acquainted you can get with the materials that he's pulling from. And in a lot of those cases, it's just like I didn't have the energy to. I don't care about reading much hegel perhaps yeah. i should but i don't
1: maybe not we at should, this moment we should, maybe we should vet our books better <laughs> we pick these we books should. Too.
0: we should uh, revisit uh our list every once in a while and be like what do we need to get the fuck off this list
1: well this one was just like i mean i wanted to read this like i because th- I, I thought it would be more of a theory like more of like him presenting <laughs> a theory to me about you know how i wanted you, to how read it because one,
0: I, yeah. I didn't remember what it was that i got from it when i was using it to write my shitty honors thesis
1: so oh you actually used me. this i to... actually did use it oh, to write wow. my
0: shitty honors thesis i don't remember why
1: yeah was specifically that, that yeah, yeah. Just give me a theory of how to read the lyric or or how it should be or
0: Well he gave you a bunch. Yeah two of theories, some of which that like I guess just were only loosely tied to the lyric, like weren't you know I mean some of them are like just straight up philosophies.
1: Yeah, uh, dude like
0: some degree aesthetic.
1: I said, dude, the internet has ruined any type of philosopher for me. Like whenever I hear somebody bringing up philosophers, particularly the French philosophers from the 18th, 19th century, yeah. I just, I, mean, I do not care. I'm walking away. I'm leaving the room. I'm just like, I don't care what you're going to say. Cause all these goddamn internet nerds that are obsessed with it. I'm just like, no, I don't want to hear it. Anymore. I just find
0: that so often it has relatively little to do uh, right. with the actual practice of reading or like doing what I do on occasion, something is presented that offers like some insight to my, to my life. But usually I'm able to get that through like reading. Oh, okay. So I've how to like approach and analyze the whole world.
1: Well, that's, I think something he didn't touch on either is that he keeps saying to express the world and things like that.
0: Yeah. That's what I mean. Like when we're talking like, about yeah. that, I attempt to remake the universe in a world.
1: Which I get to some extent, because like when you're creating something, you are creating a world, right? Like even if it yeah, but just the world just say that, yeah. But so he I mean, overcomplicates it to the point where it's hard to understand without a fucking PhD. You but
0: know. he has to say universe in the. I mean, like if you sit and think about it for a minute, if you've like read poetry enough, you'll come to some conclusion that may or may not be really close to whatever. It is Johnny Color is saying.
1: Johnny Color, dude. Why didn't we come up with that till like the last fucking five minutes? Hey, Johnny boy. Hey, Johnny, what are you writing here, baby? Johnny. Johnny, we're theorizing on the lyric. All right, that's it. I'm bored as shit. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Peace. That's it. Uh, if you want to contact us, contact us at heavyboardpodcast at com. Subscribe to Patreon. Uh, receive full uncensored episodes for subscribers only, plus bonuses. Uh, if you can't afford to subscribe to Patreon, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app, because that helps support us as well.
0: Follow us on TikTok. Yeah, we
1: don't have TikTok, but I guess we could... No. Uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, we can. I'm not doing it.
1: Yeah, I'm not doing it either. Yeah. Links to the books and everything we covered is in the description. And the next episode, we are doing Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Moby Dick. The big, the big, the big dick. Big whale peen. Big whale peen. Uh, Heavy. Bored. Heavy.
0: I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored.
1: That's pal. Pal, I do.